Well, good morning and welcome again to Grace Bible Church. It's uh, wonderful to be back. I was uh, gone last week and taking a visit to Venice and uh, the ministry there, Saving Grace Bible Church with Pastor Mark Ragg. I was able to meet with the elders. Uh, we had a wonderful meeting together. Uh, I was able to talk about uh, our work here and my understanding is over the next six weeks or so, uh, hopefully prior to Thanksgiving, Mark will be here to visit us. Uh, I'm praying that he'll be able to preach for us and, and spend some time and, and getting to know the body even better. Uh, I will say that you know the feedback that I received from them was very positive, uh, that they definitely uh, want to help us and help us move forward here at Grace Bible Church. And so we want to see that, that relationship developed over the next, uh, next six months or so. We'd love to see that continue to, to develop as we continue to grow here, as we continue to do ministry. So I'm very thankful to be back. I'm very thankful to be back in the pulpit. I thank uh, Marty for uh, filling in. I thank uh, everyone here for serving so that we could, my wife and I could go down to down to Venice and spend some time there. Uh, but I, I have to say that I, what I really love to do, what I really want to do is to be here with the body of Christ. And what I really want to do is preach the Word of God. And that's what I want to do this morning. So if you could turn with me to James chapter 5. Uh, we are, as was said earlier, we are continuing our study in James, the book of James, that is. Uh, and we have really arrived at the end of the, the letter. Uh, we have arrived at the end. We are, and James is uh, buttoning up a, a lot of what he's been saying, and, and we're going to see many of the same themes that we've seen throughout the letter as we see it, as we see this letter close. Now, specifically this morning, we are in uh, part two of a sermon that I've titled, Waiting in the Silence. Waiting in the Silence. And of course, this has to do with having patience when our Lord seems to be silent, especially in the suffering that we uh, endure. And in this sermon, James provides three reasons why you can have Great patience as you endure trials and suffering. You can have great patience because of our Lord's certain plan. It's verses 7 and 8. That's the first point. Second point is our Lord's clear purpose. That's, that's verse 9. And verse, uh, point 3, that is, is uh, His comforting presence. That's verses 10 and 11. So let me pray and then I'll read the passage and we'll get started. Heavenly Father, I just thank you this morning and praise you. Thank you for uh, bringing us here. Thank you. I praise you for this church uh, as has been encouraged. I pray that we would grow in our relationships with one another, that we would come to see uh, that while the gathering is very important, that we come together and we hear the Word of God being proclaimed, taught, that we spend time in fellowship, but that the meeting is only the start of the rest of our lives that we spend together, that we, would, that we would grow in those relationships, that we would grow in loving one another, that we would grow and in, in, uh, that we would spend time together in those, uh, in those mundane moments of life. Father, I pray for this sermon this morning. I pray, Lord, that you would use your word. We know that you will. 
We trust that your word will do its good work in the hearts of those who know you. Lord, we trust that your gospel will, uh, is, is effective and will save those who don't. We praise your holy name. In Christ's name, amen. Let me read verses 7 through 11. James 5, 7. Therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. The farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts, for the coming of the Lord is near. Do not complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job, and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealing, that dealings, that the Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. I think it goes without saying, brethren, that in general we are not a patient people. All that we have to do, all we have to do is look around us. Uh, when we're out at the mall or at the grocery store, as we stand in lines, uh, we want what we want, and we want it now. A survey in 2006 was done of 1,003 adults by the Associated Press. And it discovered the following, that while waiting in line at an office or store, most people take an average of 17 minutes to lose their patience. 17 minutes. On hold on the phone, most people lose their patience in nine minutes. Women lost their patience after waiting in line for about 18 minutes. Men lost theirs after 15 minutes. People with lower income and less education are more patient than those with a college education and with a high income. People who live in suburbs are more patient than people who live in the city. Now, those stats were compiled in 2006, and as you know, if you're looking at our culture, you know that those were simpler times. That we have, if anything, grown less patient as a people. And one can only imagine that it has gotten worse. Chances are, brethren, I, I hate to break it to you, but chances are that you are not very patient. You're not very patient, and neither am I. But as Thomas Watson states, a Christian without patience is like a soldier without arms. We, as Christians, must be a patient people. Just this week, I have been reading a book called The Gulag Archipelago, which chronicles Stalin's labor camps in which millions died. The author believes that as many as 60 million people died in these labor camps in the 20th century. In the book, the author, he describes some interrogation techniques that the the Russians used to get people to confess to crimes that they didn't commit. In one of their techniques, they would arrest someone at night and immediately put them in a punishment cell. Many times, these cells were small and dark and wouldn't allow the, the person who had been placed in the cell to be able to sit down or much less lay down. And they would leave them in that punishment cell for hours, just in their thoughts. Many times, they would leave them there until the next night, when sleeplessness and anxiety had had their effect on interrogating them. 
so that they would so that they would have these questions in their mind why was i arrested what did i do will there will i be left here forever will i be here forever will i ever see my family again do they know where i'm at why is this happening to me one can only imagine how difficult it would be to stay patient in this type of in the face of this type of treatment uh, we can't even be patient at McDonald's when we have to wait, uh, uh, when we're running a minute or two late, much less staying patient as we endure difficult situations. I want to remind you that in our passage today, James addresses his readers who are going through incredibly trying situations, probably far beyond what you or I could ever imagine. Probably much greater than we uh, have ever endured. They were dealing with great hardship, probably stemming from persecution, at the hands of some wicked and wealthy landowners. And they really didn't have any recourse, because they were dealing with a partial judgment system. So they were living a life that there didn't seem to be any tomorrow that was going to get any better. Incredibly difficult. Incredibly difficult. But James knew, right? He was pastoral in heart. He was a shepherd. And he knew how difficult that it was to deal with these issues and situations. And he also knew the importance of our testimony as Christians. That as we face these difficulties, as we face this suffering, that there's a watching world that's seeing how we're going to react. You, you do realize that when we're standing in line at McDonald's, we, there's a testimony there, right? When we're showing a lack of patience, there's a testimony. And especially when we face the greater difficulties of life, maybe it's sickness, maybe it's death, maybe it's other things that happen to us, that, that there's a watching world that's seeing us and how we react. Well, James was concerned about these people. And that's why he wanted to give them these reasons, these three reasons that we've talked about. Uh, the, the first reason being that God or, or our Lord has a certain plan. James says, therefore be patient, brethren, until the coming of the Lord. And he's basically saying, based on everything that I've said, let me close with these parting words. Now, since he's closing the letter, as I mentioned earlier, what we're going to see is some of the same themes become, come back in, in smaller form or quicker form. In his first paragraph of the letter, James had told his readers to have joy in their trials. Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of their faith would produce endurance. You see, James didn't promise that the difficulties would end anytime soon. He didn't promise that tomorrow the Lord is going to come and make it all better. He told them that they need to endure their difficulties and that as they do, they would grow in maturity and in Christ's likeness. Now, James in chapter 1, when we talked about it a lot, James in chapter 1 gave them the reason they should be joyful in trials. They become more and more like Christ. But also in, in verse 12, he told them, Blessed is a man who perseveres under trials, for once he has been approved, he will receive the crown of life, which the Lord has promised to those who love him. So there's, 
even though there's not this promise that, that God is going to make it all better tomorrow, or even next week or next month, even though there's not that promise, there is a promise that in the future there is going to be something much greater than what we see here. It's a promise of heaven, right? Amen. We must remember that there's certainty to this. Certainty to this. In other words, our Lord, our Lord Jesus has a certain plan that we can trust. Things may look bleak on here on earth, but we can trust that, that God is good. We can trust His plan because He has this plan and we know that He is good. Therefore, we know it's going to be a good plan, right? Now, it's interesting that James encourages here his readers to patience. By using this word, he's not only calling his, his uh, readers to endure the, the adversity of life, but he's also calling them to be patient uh, with their adversaries. And even non-retaliatory, he's saying don't lash back at them because the tendency of our hearts and when we're being pressed is to lash out. Especially against those who are pressing us. And James encourages them to stay patient even as they endure these trials. He says, he goes on to say, look at the text, the farmer waits for the precious produce of the soil, being patient about it until it gets the early and late rains. You too be patient. Strengthen your hearts for the coming of the Lord is near. He gives the, the example of the farmer who, as he waits on the rains from the Lord, as the picture of patience. See, the farmer is reliant on these rains, and he has no choice but be patient until they come. He can't, being impatient is not going to cause the rains to come any faster, right? So he tells them, be patient, strengthen your heart. As we said last time in our our part one, now just as the farmer readies his implements for the harvest, the believer must strengthen his heart. In contrast with the rich who were fattening their hearts for their own future judgment, he exhorts the believing poor to establish their hearts in anticipation of God's coming, or Christ's coming that is. It's the same word that Dr. Luke used in Luke 9.51 when he, he said that when the days were approaching for Jesus' ascension, he was determined to go to Jerusalem. He was, he, he was resolute to go to Jerusalem. He, he, he was strengthened to go there. Again, we, as we said, he was resolute in his willingness to follow the Father's plan. In other words, nothing would stand in his way as he set his face to go to Jerusalem. And so uh, James is calling on these suffering believers to show the same steadfastness of faith that the Lord Jesus showed in his going to the cross. And we should point out that Jesus himself knew that he was going to suffer at the hands of godless men. And men, in Matthew seventeen twelve, he says, The Son of Man is going to suffer at their hands. And so he was willing to go. He was resolute to go. Looking back on the cross, Peter says this, this man Jesus, who was delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. It's Acts chapter 2. Jesus knew that it was the will of God that he suffered. And it must be, and it may be, that is, in his will that you suffer in his footsteps. You suffer for His name's sake, even at the hands of godless men. And that's what's happening here with the people that James is writing to, right? They're suffering at the hands of of godless men. They're following in the, the footsteps of our Lord. 
believers thus are to remain resolute amid their suffering until Jesus returns and remedies their situation. The question is, do you trust God's certain plan for your life, even if it includes suffering? Are you willing to patiently endure trials and hardships for His sake? You who are impatient to even stand in the line at McDonald's. And I believe me, I'm I'm with you. right? I'm right there with you. I I don't like to have to wait any more than anybody else. right? But, But God calls us to be patient, especially as we endure trials and suffering. You see, beloved, I I know you know this. But there's no guarantees in this life. Except that Christ will reign and He will return in judgment against those who persecute His godly ones. That's the only thing that we can trust in. Because He has a certain plan. Listen to this quote by A.W. Tozer. He says this, What then are we to do about our problems? We must live to learn, or learn to live with them until such time as God delivers us from them. We must pray for grace to endure them without murmuring. Problems patiently endured will work for our spiritual perfecting. They harm us only. Look at this. This is, this is important. Our problems, our difficulties, our suffering, harm us only when we resist them or endure them unwillingly. End quote. Isn't that profound? Well, James provides a second reason that we can have patience as, as we endure our trials. That is our Lord's clear purpose. That's verse 9. Take a look at the text. It says, Do not pro- complain, brethren, against one another, so that you yourselves may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. Now, James exhorts the brethren not to complain against one another. It seems that then that our tendency, when placed under pressure, is to complain. Now, that can't be true, right? We would not complain. We wouldn't have that struggle. No, this complaining could be, is, can be defined as a sigh or a groan. Uh, the word also con- conveys the idea of grumbling. Uh, the farmer may be tempted to grumble impatiently when the needed rains are delayed. And in the same manner, Christians may be tempted to grumble impatiently with one another or with each other when the Lord seems to delay His coming. Especially when we're under difficulty, right? When there's great difficulty, we have a tendency to grumble impatiently, especially toward one another. Uh, We not only tend to complain in general, you know, this is so terrible, right? But we tend to uh, grumble and complain against one another. And sadly, sadly, this is too close to home in our churches, right? Have you ever been to a church that doesn't have a struggle with complaining, especially against each other? I, I haven't. It's, it's what we do, right? It's not right, but it is what we do. And our, sin, our sinful tendency is to, to vent. It, it, just as we might vent our pressure or the pressure from a stressful work environment or uh, ill health on our close friends or, or family, we tend to take things out on those who we love the most, right? We tend, to, we tend to lash out to those who are closest. If you're married, you probably know that you fight and argue when things are the most stressful, right? Money gets tight. Kids disobey. 
whatever, whatever uh, adds stress in, the, in your life, you tend to, to fight more uh, with your spouse when that's happening. Same thing in the church. Uh, the more we suffer, the more we uh, are under pressure, the more likely it is that we're going to lash out against one another. So it would be, we understand it would be quite natural for James's readers under the pressure of poverty and persecution to turn their frustrations on one another. Now clearly, this is a very important issue to James. Because, because James had already told them and admonished them in chapter 3 to, to bridle their tongues. So the, their tongues, what their words were a problem. Especially uh, their words against uh, one another. Now brethren, we need, to, we need to recognize this tendency in ourselves, right? Especially when difficulties come upon us. We tend to, to grumble and complain, especially toward those who are closest to us. Now, this is really unbecoming of, a, of the Christian, right? It's unbecoming because there's a watching world that's seeing us and hearing us. And as we grumble against one another, it, it certainly doesn't look good to someone on the outside. Now, what is this, right? I can have this in the, in the world. I don't, need, I don't need to add this to my life. Paul exhorted the Philippians, who were undoubtedly struggling with strife in their midst. He said this in Philippians 2.14, Do all things, not some things, not a few things, not even most things. He said all things, without grumbling or disputing. Here's what he says. This is what's interesting. This This goes with what I was saying. In verse 15, he says, So that you will prove yourselves to be blameless, and innocent children of God above reproach in the midst of a crooked and perverse generation. Now this is really, get this, among whom you appear as lights in the world. So when we are suffering and we uh, bridle our tongue and we uh, keep ourselves from grumbling and, and disputing, we don't complain, then we are, we are lights to a, a lost and dying world. Right? James goes on in chapter 5, James 5. James goes on to give a warning to those who would continue to grumble against one another. He says this So that, look at the text, so that you may not be judged. Behold, the judge is standing right at the door. You see, James had already warned them about judging impartiality back in James, James chapter 2. Now he warns them that they should not complain lest they be judged. Now, you should hear a little bit of an echo. Back to Matthew chapter 7, where Jesus told his listeners not to judge lest they be judged. You see, we are judging our brothers and sisters when we complain against them. We all have our faults, and we, when we are under pressure, our cracks and weaknesses begin to show even more. But we tend to forget that we all have faults. We tend to forget our own faults and weaknesses, and we tend to miss our own blind spots. It's easy to see everybody else's, right? Well, I can see, I can see your problem. I can see what you're struggling with, but I, I don't tend to see my problems. And so, when I'm complaining against someone, I'm judging them, right? Well, James is saying, wait a minute, be careful, careful, careful what you say, because it's coming right back at you. 
But But by the way, guess who's going to be the judge? Perfect judge, right? Thomas A. Kempis says this, Try to bear patiently with the defects and infirmities of others, whatever they may be, because you also have many a fault which others must endure. If you cannot make yourself what you would wish to be, how can you bend others to your will? We want them to be perfect, yet we do not correct our own faults. Did you get that? We want everybody else to be perfect, yet we struggle to correct our own faults. We struggle to even see them, much less correct them. You see how difficult it is? I mean, I I know I struggle with this in my life. I see the things that I do see that are faults of mine. I have a very hard time changing those things, but much less the things that I can't see, right? So, boy, I need to be quick to, to understand that I have just as many faults or more than anybody else, right? I myself are no better. See, James then gives the reason, we mentioned it earlier, why we mustn't grumble against one another, because the judge is standing right at the door. You see, not only does Jesus have a certain plan, but he has a clear purpose. He came in weakness at his first coming, but he will come again in judgment. Unbelievers can expect him to come in his wrath. And we see that in in Revelation 19. We see that, that he, John says in 19.11, And I saw the heaven open, and behold, a white horse, and he who sat on it is called uh, faithful and true, and in righteousness he judges and wages war. And then it gives, he gives a further description of, of God's wrath as, as Christ judges. But back in James 5, I believe the statement does refer to his coming judgment because we've seen that already in context. But it also refers to his closeness now, right? In, in, in Revelation, we see in Revelation 2, 1, 1 through 3, that is, we see that, that he walks among the churches. We can be assured that he's here now, that he's walking al- among the lampstands now, right? Isn't that amazing? If you think about, if you if you read the the letters in Revelation two and three, how personal those letters are. He knows exactly what's happening. He knows exactly what's going on here. He knows everything that's happening. He knows every little conversation, every little flippant thought that we have. Brother and sister, all your doings, all our doings, all my doings, uh, whether good or bad, are seen by our Lord Jesus. He is standing at the gate. He is fully aware of what is happening in this church and in every church. And again, His purpose is clear. He knows all things and He will set all things in order when He returns. If you've struggled with the sin of complaining against one another, I urge you to repent. Turn from it. Jesus himself said to the church at Laodicea, Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Therefore be zealous and repent. Zealous and repent. He goes on to say, very similar, very similar language. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and and will dine with him and he with me. Beloved, if if you are his... If you belong to Him, He loves you. And those whom He loves, He will reprove and discipline. Therefore, He calls you to repent. 
Repent of your complaining against one another. Repent of those things. He calls you to love one another. As the Apostle John said in 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Well, we've seen that our Lord's certain plan and His clear purpose. Now let's look at the third reason why you can have great patience as you endure trials. Our Lord's comforting presence. Look at verse 10. James 5.10 As an example, brethren, of suffering and patience, take the prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord. Now, canonical and non-canonical literature of of this period is rife with the suffering of of the prophets. We could say that their their suffering for the sake of God's name was really a, a theme of the Old Testament. 2 Chronicles 36 sums it up this way. It sums up the way they were treated. Listen to this. 2 Chronicles 36.15 The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent word to them again and again by His messengers because He had compassion on His people and on His dwelling place. But they, get this in verse 16, but they continually mocked the messengers of God, despised His words, and scoffed at His prophets until the wrath of the Lord arose against His people until there was no remedy. Now does that not connect back to Psalm 79 that we read earlier? That in, in the people's sinfulness and their, their, they were stiff-necked and God sent judgment to them. He, he sent His word through the prophet and they opposed His prophets and God judged them for it. In the New Testament, our Lord says this in Matthew 5.11, Blessed are you when people insult you and persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward in heaven is great. For in the same way, they persecuted the prophets who were before you. Now that connects not only to this idea of suffering of the prophets, but it also connects to the reward in heaven that James speaks of in chapter 1, verse 12. And so he's encouraging these people to understand that their reward is great if they, they stand up against or under the persecution, especially with patience and endurance. In Matthew 23.35, Jesus reminded the religious leaders of all the righteous blood that had been shed on earth, from the, righteous, uh, the blood of righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, whom he says, you murdered. You murdered between the temple and the altar. The, the writer of Hebrews had said something very similar. He said this about the prophets. Others, he said, and others experienced mockings and scourging. This is Hebrew, Hebrews eleven thirty six. Others experienced mocking and scourgings, and yes, also chains and imprisonments. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were tempted. They were put to death with the sword. They went about in sheepskins and in goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, ill-treated, men of whom the world was not worthy wandering in deserts, mountains, and caves, and holes in the ground. That's how they treated the prophets. James reminds them of this, that his people. He reminds them of how the people were treated, the righteous were treated uh, before them. And these people are an example to us. Following Christ, then, is not a bed of roses. It's not a bed of roses. And I'm afraid that some of us think it is. I'm afraid that some people, some people who call themselves Christians, who think that they're Christians, believe that it is a, a bed of roses to follow Christ. And it's not. It's not. It's hard. It's difficult. 
John 15, 20 says this, Remember the word that I said to you, this is the Lord Jesus, A slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul, Paul reiterated this promise in, in 2 Timothy 3.12. He says this, uh, Indeed, I know if you've heard this, um, you probably have. Uh, indeed, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. Will be persecuted. Therefore, we can conclude that James wanted these people to understand that the most celebrated prophets who spoke in the name of the Lord were persecuted and suffered for the sake of God. The wicked often oppressed them because of the things that they spoke against them. The wicked also oppressed our Lord Jesus and the apostles. And in the church age, the church age, our age, the age that we live in now, the wicked still oppress true followers of our Lord Jesus. If we truly follow Christ, we will be persecuted for our faith. Therefore, the example of patient, the patient suffering of the prophets and the apostles and our Lord should lead us to patiently suffer in this world. That's James's point. James goes on in verse 11 to say this. Chapter 5, verse 11. Look at the text. We count those blessed who endured. You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. Here James brings back the idea of endurance. That's from chapter 1. Consider it all joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. And he brings that back, connecting it back to James 1, 2 through 4. This endurance then refers to staying power under trials and difficulties. Uh, we see those who have endured and, and we see that despite their great suffering, God has blessed them. And really, you could even say because of their great suffering, God has blessed them. The, those Christians who have suffered the most for the name of Christ are the ones we most revere and are the ones that God has most blessed. In Acts 5.40, the apostles were flogged and ordered not to speak in the name of, of Jesus. And this, listen to this in 5.41, Acts 5.41. So they went on their way from the presence of the council, rejoicing that they had been considered worthy to suffer shame for His name. Paul wrote this to the Philippians in Philippians 1.29. This is, this, is, this is profound. This is profound. Philippians 1.29. For to you it has been granted for Christ's sake, not only to believe in Him, so... so that word granted is actually, uh, charis is the, is the root word. Uh, it's been grace gifted, grace gifted for you to believe, but also to suffer for His sake. So you, when you suffer for Christ's sake, it's a, it's, it's a gift. It's a gift. It's not a very popular message now, is it? I'm not, going to get, I'm not going to get any popularity awards. I'm not going to get the favorite preacher in Gainesville for preaching this message. That, that, that Christ, Christ calls for you to suffer for His sake. And that you will be blessed for that. Peter wrote these words in 1 Peter 4.15. Make sure that none of you suffers as a murderer or thief or evildoer or a troublesome meddler. 
Listen to verse 16. But if anyone suffers as a Christian, he is not to be ashamed, but is to glorify God in his name. James goes on to say, look at, look at the text, James 5. James goes on to say, You have heard of the endurance of Job and have seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. He endured, Job that is, endured much hardship as the Lord Lord used him as an example of suffering. Job, we want to make sure I point out that Job was not always the most patient. But he never cursed God as he endured the suffering. In Job 6.11 he lamented this, What is my strength that I should wait? What is my end that I should endure? Job 14.14 he again laments, all, all the days of my struggle, I will wait. I will endure. I will endure until my change comes. He, he was looking expectantly for that day when it would change for him. But he was, he was saying, he was proclaiming that he would endure. He would wait for the Lord. See, no, Job was not always patient. But he did endure. And, and this nuance we shouldn't pass over, right? Because James is speaking of the endurance of Job. He doesn't, he doesn't speak directly of the patience of Job. Job was an example, or, uh, an example of endurance. And he's also an example, get this, he's an example of God's blessing to those who endure. That's James's point. Look at Job's life. The last chapter of the book of Job tells us that Yahweh restored the fortunes of Job and the Lord, Yahweh, increased all that Job had had twofold. And so of all the suffering that he went through, all the suffering that he endured, God blessed him twofold. Increased all that he had. James refers to this when he says, you've seen the outcome of the Lord's dealings. We see it. We see the outcome. That those who endure for His sake, God greatly blesses. We can be patient as we endure great trials and difficulties, knowing that He will never forsake us. No matter how much it seems that He is not there, no matter how difficult it may be, we can trust His comforting presence. Trust His comforting presence. We've seen three reasons why we can have great patience as we endure trials. You see, our Lord has a a certain plan. A certain plan. We can trust in it. it. It includes a glorious future. No matter how hard it is for us today. No matter what you're dealing with today whether it's an uncertain future here on this earth, you don't know what the Lord is going to do, whether it's sickness, whether it be your own health or or the health of a family member, whether it's persecution or not. Maybe maybe you're dealing with persecution. Maybe, Maybe you're facing something at work. We can have great patience we have great patience as we endure those things, knowing that He has that certain plan, that He will, He will return, and He will bless us 
He will reward us. But that's for those who have trust in Him, right? Who trust Him. Secondly, we, we know that our Lord has a clear purpose of judgment toward those who persist in complaining, right? That we, we know that He has this clear purpose, that He will come in judgment. And He will certainly judge those who cause the suffering of His godly ones. So we can have great patience knowing that if we know Him and we're suffering uh, at the hands of ungodly people, that we can have great patience. And thirdly, our Lord promises His comforting presence, especially for those who are suffering for His name's sake. You can trust that He is there. You can trust that that He stands at the gate. And if you are are suffering for His name's sake, that He's standing there and He's waiting to, 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 to show compassion. But the text ends with this. The text ends with this. Verse 11. The Lord is full of compassion and is merciful. That encapsulates all that James has said. We can trust in Him because He is full of compassion and is merciful. That statement ties to Exodus. Exodus chapter 34. Turn there if you want. You remember Moses the Lord had called Moses to cut out for him for yourself two stone tablets like the former ones he had he had broke he had shattered them he said I will write on the tablets the words that were on the former tablets which you shattered and so he told him be ready by morning and come up in the morning on Mount Sinai and present yourself there to be on top of the mountain so Moses did as he was commanded Verse 5, it says, The Lord descended in the cloud and stood there with him as, as he called upon the name of the Lord. Moses was in worship. It says this, verse 6, The Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in loving kindness and truth. So God proclaimed to Moses his, that He's compassionate and He's gracious and He's slow to anger and He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. And that's the truth that James wanted his readers to know. That's the truth that James wanted his readers to understand as they endured this great persecution at the hands of these ungodly, wicked people. He wanted them to understand that God, the Lord God, is compassionate and gracious and slow to anger and He's abounding in loving kindness and truth. But I want to tell you something else. In verse 7, it says, He keeps His loving kindness for thousands. He forgives iniquity and transgression and sin. But guess what? It says this, Yet he will by no means leave the guilty unpunished. You see, God's wrath and His mercy and compassion are inseparable. 
Right? You can't have one without the other. You can't have one without the other. See, these people... See, James said the judge is standing at the door. That James had already told them back in James chapter 5. He'd already told them that, that these rick, wicked rich people, their hearts were being fattened for the judgment. You see, God is a, a, a merciful and compassionate God to those who trust in Him, to those who believe, to those who bow their knee to Him. But, but, He is a wrathful judge to those who stiffen their neck. To those who continue in their sin. We started this sermon by observing that we're not a very patient people. Beloved, we are not patient because we haven't suffered enough. Suffering is what brings that patience. Suffering is what gives us endurance. But when we suffer, we have to remember what? The goodness of God. I've said it. I've said it before. We have to have a good theology of suffering of trials because when they come upon us if we don't understand them then we will lash out at God and lash out at one another if we don't understand that God uses our suffering God uses our trials for his glory then we are apt to get it all wrong right and act in a way that is not glorifying to Him. My prayer for you and for myself, I struggle the same way, is that when suffering comes, when great trial and difficulty comes, that we will remember God's goodness and we will suffer well with endurance and patience. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning again. I pray that we would have a good theology of suffering. A right understanding that as we suffer It is a a grace gift to suffer for His sake. Father, I'm, I'm afraid that if we don't meditate on this, if we don't learn it, I'm afraid that when suffering does come, that we won't handle it very well. I pray for our people that they will suffer well. I pray for those who don't know you here today that they would 
consider what has been said. Consider this world and understand the need for salvation. I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you would come to realize that no amount of good works, no amount of being good before you will ever, ever, ever save them. It's only through belief. Belief in what you've done through your Son in His suffering on the cross for our sin and our transgression. Defeating sin and death. We thank you and praise you in Christ's name. Amen.